Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined by Dr. Daniel Harrison, who's someone I know from way back in the day. And uh, he's done some really interesting work in sociology, telling stories that are relevant today, maybe stories that might have been forgotten otherwise. We'll talk about all of that with Dan, but to begin, I just want to welcome Dan to Trending in Education. So Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. I'm happy to be here today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And we always begin by getting our guests' origin story. So what got you to this point sure. in your professional life? So take us on that journey. It's been a, a long journey. I was born in England. I was born in Stratford-on-Avon, of all places, which your listeners may know. That's where uh, Shakespeare both yeah. was uh, born and, and died. So I always joke that I need to go back to Stratford when I you know, am uh, getting up there in years so I can yeah. close the loop like Will did. Came over to the States when I was eight and lived outside of Denver, Colorado for a few years and then moved to Florida, junior year in high school, Gainesville, and then from there, went down to New College of Florida, which is uh, where I, I met you at the Honors College of the State of Florida system, which was an awesome education. And I still think back very fondly to those you know, formative days. Mm -hmm. And then from then, this was 1993 when I graduated, and uh, this was pre-internet. And uh, there weren't a lot of job opportunities in corporate America and went the traditional academic route. New college is really good for send, sending people on, on the PhD path. So after um, about uh, six months in the San Francisco area, temping, I went to Florida State in Tallahassee and I started a sociology degree and did a master's degree on the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, which was a uh, union busting, uh, strike busting firm back in the day. Mm -hmm. And then did my dissertation also at Florida State on network analysis, looking at uh, the work of network theorist, Dr. Harrison White. And then from then I, I went out to uh, Colorado again. And my first uh, job rather was at a Western State College in Colorado. And I, I teach a lot of uh, sociological theory classes, uh, intro, capstone classes, uh, deviant social control, these types of things. And then I migrated down to South Carolina and after a one-year stint at Furman University, I, I've been at uh, Landry University, which is in Greenwood, South Carolina, for the last uh, 16 years or so. I'm a professor of sociology here and uh, teach some of those classes that I mentioned, and also have been doing a number of research projects uh, over the years. Initially started off with kind of you know shorter, more some encyclopedia articles, and then shorter research articles, and so on and so forth. And then since when was it? Uh, well, about 10 years or so, I, I started on my first book project, which ended up being Making Sense of Marshall Ledbetter. Mm -hmm. And then in 2014, I started my second uh, book project, which is uh, Life at Jackson Station, which, which just came out. Yeah. I describe myself as being a cultural sociologist, historical sociologist. I'd like to bridge the divide between kind of academic audiences and, and lay audiences and, yeah. and so on. Yeah, and that's uh, part of what, why we wanted to get you on this show because we are lay. We are generally not. <laughs> we're generally not academic, not formally educated as academics, and yeah. at least I'm not. I use the royal we as a podcaster, but uh, we've had quite a few folks who have taken an academic route on the show. But what I really wanted to spend uh, the most time with you on in, in today's conversation is talking about your books because I think they're both hugely relevant in very different ways. So I think we would cool. uh, begin with uh, Live at Jackson Station, which just yeah. came out, and yeah. and then spend some time on Marshall Ledbetter too, which I was not uh, really that aware of that story. Maybe I'd forgotten, maybe I never, never was mm -hmm. aware of it, but 
has a lot of interesting themes for us to pick up on today. But the broader reason why I wanted to have you on was we talk a lot about the importance of storytelling as a, ma- a macro trend in education. And I think your books are written in a way that it is accessible and is very much focused on narrative and, and human stories. I, I do recommend even non-academic listeners to check out Live at Jackson Station. And then what was the name of the Marshall Ledbetter book? Making Sense of Marshall Ledbetter. They're both available on Amazon and regular yep. uh, ways in which you can get books. But to begin with, Dan, since it's uh, fresh off the presses, yep. Live at Jackson Station, can you tell us a bit about the story behind that? Yeah, Live at Jackson Station is uh, just finished this book, actually finished writing it last summer, and it focuses in on this blues bar in the South Carolina upstate, in a little town called Hodges, South Carolina. And it uh, is uh, this bar was housed in an old railroad depot that had been built in 1870. And it was owned by this guy named Gerald Jackson and his boyfriend, Steve Bryant, and then also Gerald's mother, Elizabeth Jackson. And uh, so that in and of itself is interesting because you have two gay guys in the upstate South Carolina. And this was 1975 is when this bar, this blues bar opened for the first time. And... um, from in the early 80s, they started having amazing music shows there. And your listeners has probably heard of about a, a jam band called Light, uh, Widespread Panic, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the, the biggest kind of musical acts uh, still around today. And they came over from Athens, Georgia, and uh, when they were, you know, very young and just starting out, and they played nine shows at Jackson Station over the years, and they were very welcomed by Gerald and Steve, and they really appreciated the family vibe of Jackson Station and kind of the tolerant nature of the place, the diversity of the place. Jackson Station was the only late night uh, club in the area. And so people would come from miles around. They would drive up from Charleston. They would come down from Charlotte. They would come down from Greenville across from Athens and up from Augusta and so on and so forth. And and they would party there and, and, and drink and listen to live music until about five o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And it all came crashing down one day when Gerald, the owner, got attacked by a maniac with a bush axe in the in the parking lot. Yeah. And and then the club, for all intents and purposes, closed down. Right. And when I moved to Greenwood, which is where my uh, university is housed, I had heard about this place being just, you know, this amazing kind of oasis of tolerance and kind of just diversity and cosmopolitanism and so on and so forth, which is really rare in, you know, the deep South. And I live in a place which is still, it's a very red state, South Carolina is, but you have pockets of blue and and lots of purple kind of along the way. And so I found, I found that idea to be very fascinating. And I was looking for the next research project to follow on after the Marshall Ledbetter. And so I started to do some investigation into Jackson Station as a musical identity and kind of this local institution mm-hmm. that would promote and nurture and foster a whole bunch of musical talent yeah. over the years, actually. And right. uh, a lot of you know bands would come over from Atlanta and Athens, Love Tractor, which was uh, kind of contemporaneous with R.E.M., and they have a, a huge following still today. They played there, the Georgia Satellites, you had some amazing blues play there. Yeah. Nappy Brown, the R&B songwriter. So it was a fascinating case study. And I was amazed that no one had done anything with it before then. As a sociologist and as a researcher, you're always looking for a story that hasn't been told before. Yeah. And the fact that it was this iconic 
musical establishment and then also the fact that this apparent hate crime that happened there was all it needed for me to get interested in it. Did a lot of interviews, about 65 interviews, uh, a lot of archival research, and then also a lot of uh, deep analysis of the court transcript and and so on and so forth. Yeah. And hopefully the end result is, I, I think, is a pretty decent read. There's an academic side to it, which you can pick up in the footnotes and if you just want to read the straight story without looking at the footnotes or the endnotes, you can. Yeah. The book, I think you could read at the beach or a bed at night or whatever, or on the bus. And yeah. and it's been fun. I've been getting a lot of good press. It, it, it's sold out the first, we've already sold out the first printing entirely. Awesome. Congratulations. Uh, and that's five that's, days. And that's, so, prior to that's, this episode, that's prior to this episode of Trending in Education coming out. I was mentioning uh, mentioning to yep. you as we were preparing that both this, and then we'll get into the Marshall Ledbetter story next. I think they do have much broader crossover appeal and uh, they remind me of podcasts I've listened to as well. The whole true crime category is very much what jumped to mind around live at Jackson station. Any thoughts on on Mm. that and your methodology that went into this and whether there are parallels to be drawn between the work that a sociologist might do putting a book like this together and the work that, that maybe some like new job, just job types like podcasters or storytellers uh, may engage with these days. Yeah. That's a really fascinating question. I think there is a tremendous amount of overlap there, actually. And while I was working on the book, my wife, Rebecca, told me about a podcast called uh, S-Town, a hugely popular podcast. And it's set in, I think it's Bibb County, Alabama, or mm-hmm. you know, someplace like that, mm-hmm. focuses in on this guy named uh, J.B. McElmore. And uh, while I was listening to that, which is was at the tail end of uh, you know finishing up Jackson Station, I saw a lot of parallels yeah. you know, between kind of the Southern culture of that part of Alabama and the subculture or one of the subcultures, which would frequent Jackson station. Right. And, and I think in, in both situations, you need to do a hell of a lot of research, obviously. And you need, you need to have a, a really good rapport with your subjects, the people who are, you know, sharing their stories, you know, yeah. with you, you need to be very diligent about recording everything, obviously. And, and then for me very quickly making copies of those recordings in case anything happens to it. Yeah. I've thought about possibly turning the book into a podcast yeah. uh, after the fact, mm-hmm. because I have just hours and hours of interviews with with these people, with the subjects in the book. And a lot of them have, you know, really fascinating accents too. And uh, that's something that, that doesn't always come across in 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 a text, in, yes. in, a, in a written text is yes. you know, dialect and accents and yeah. And, and things e- like that. Yeah, even even subtler things like emotion and uh, there's a level of intimacy in the spoken word that I, I particularly in audiobooks nowadays, I've started to see uh, Pushkin uh, Industries, which is where Malcolm Gladwell is now, like they're mm-hmm. doing more like NPR style audiobooks. Uh, and it is interesting that the podcast as a format is is also like is almost natively more highly produced particularly for these this whole genre that began with serial and then extended into s-town and it's really exploded and then i think the themes within jackson station that that struck me were really around tolerance and Mm -hmm. diversity but with a level of authenticity to the description that i don't always hear and, and also with an element of surprise around the context you were describing the fact that this is rural South Carolina, yeah. uh, and that there is still these really rich subcultures that are all able to have a sense of identity 
and uh, a sense of ownership of this place that is Jackson Station. Can you expand on that? Sure. The really amazing thing about Jackson Station is he had a number of different distinct social groups or subcultures or identities claiming the bar as their own. And so the place was known for being a biker bar. And so you'd have beefy biker guys show up and, and park. you'd have 10 or 12 motorcycles parked out, out front. But it was also known as a gay bar. Not completely, as not always as a gay bar, but yeah. gay people were welcome there. It had gay owners and so on and so forth. And so the gay and lesbian crowd adopted it as their own. The college kids would also come and adopt it as their own. The rednecks would also hang out there. Yeah. And the countercultural types of the 1980s, people listening to New Order and PIL and the punk, the clash and, and, yeah. and so on, you know, they would feel you know, welcomed by Jackson Station. And there was a, a certain respect of difference there, mm. which I think was very genuine. And very rarely were there any sort of interdisciplinary squabbles. And the yeah. place was large enough. And I think Gerald Jackson in, in particular was gracious enough to basically let everyone know that all were welcome. And so in this respect, it was a, a very Catholic with a small C place, a very... Right ecumenical vibe was going on there. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that is something which you don't find a lot of places. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anymore, and yeah. You know. And I found that both surprising, maybe a little bit inspirational, surprising that it was happening so long ago, but also not that's surprising if you really think about it. Mm -hmm. But then the story ultimately is, again, we don't want to spoil too much here. It doesn't end particularly well. Jackson Station is no longer open. Can you just share a little bit more, give folks a taste of, of maybe how the story plays out a bit? Because I was certainly intrigued listening to you talk about yeah. this. And I think you could, what are appetites? About halfway through the book, the, the narrative shifts a little bit because after the attack, the club doesn't fare as well. This was Gerald Jackson's baby. This was his dream. And it, it just it all came crashing down after that. A number of people tried to reopen the club, but it just really didn't have the same sort of magic. And so the book at that point takes a little bit more of a, I wouldn't call it necessarily like a, a, a legal thriller because it's, it's not really that, but it is a literary nonfiction analysis or representation of the subsequent trial and the aftermath and what happened to Gerald and, and also Steve, two gay men who were in a very committed, loving relationship, actually, until Gerald uh, passed away uh, 20 years later, right. which is another sort of element to the story. What I try to do in Life in Jackson Station actually is intertwine four or five different sort of narratives, actually. There's the musical narrative, which talks a lot about bands like Widespread Panic and the Blues and the swimming pool cues and, and how Jackson Station had such an influence on the careers of these musicians. Yeah. And then I also think of Jackson Station as being like the social hub of the greater Greenwood area and so on. And then there's also the diversity aspect and there's the potential hate crime aspect yeah. to it. And I would describe it as a dive into the culture of the South and how the culture of the South relates to maybe American culture in general. Yep. And it addresses kind of themes of culture wars to a certain extent. And, but also I would say how uh, culture can actually transcend politics in interesting ways and how mm -hmm. art and music more specifically can transcend politics mm -hmm. and maybe how education in some respects possibly to bring it back to the theme of the show yeah. might be able to transcend politics through what you were talking about storytelling mm -hmm. and so on yeah and those are some of the themes that 
that I hit on. Yeah. And so folks, hopefully your appetites are whetted for this book live at Jackson Station. Another element to it that I find interesting, and again, showing my age, is that I do think we're in this retro window for the late 80s, early 90s, which is also really lurid. For those of you who like true crime, tabloid type stuff, there are elements of that in uh, in the story of Live at Jackson Station 2, where a bush axe three and a half inches into, into Gerald's skull, uh, skull. Yeah. is yeah. a pretty powerful image. And it is something that was sticking in my memory, like a bush axe. But yeah, yeah, and then that same window of time is when your other book really happened. And it's also, truth be told, when you and I knew each other back at New College. So it is- right sort of taking me back to to the early 90s, but uh, very similar in that respect, where a lot of storytelling and research. And again, uh, the podcast producer in me thinks it could make an excellent uh, podcast, but it's the story of Marshall Ledbetter. Can, can sure. you share, share a little bit of that as well? Yes, and, and I, I'd be happy to. And also, I think that's, a, that's an important observation. And it's actually one which I haven't really thought too much about, but you're exactly right. The time periods that I talk about in Life at Jackson Station do coincide quite well with making sense of Marshall Ledbetter. Marshall Ledbetter was a honor student, actually an erstwhile honor student at, at Florida State University who decided to um, take over the Florida Capitol, to kind of storm the Florida Capitol in the early uh, hours of, I think it was June 6th, 1991, middle of the summertime. And he, he broke into the Capitol and he actually occupied the Sergeant of Arms office while he was in there. And he issued a, a really kind of bizarre list of, of demands, including uh, 666 jelly donuts for the police. Yeah. And uh, he wanted an extra large Gumby's pizza with, with extra jalapenos. Yeah. And he wanted a, a carton of cigarettes and he wanted interviews with Jello Biafra and Flavor Flav and Ice Cube and members yeah. of the of the American Indian movement and uh, Tim- Timothy Leary, I believe. Tim- oh, sorry, yes, of course. How could I forget? Timothy Leary was in on that list too. And at the time, people thought that it was this this political prank that it was kind of this kind of theatrical kind of stunt that that Marshall was was carrying out, and he actually ended up being unharmed. But he was uh, very swiftly, you know, taken in, into custody, and he was declared incompetent to, to proceed. And then he ends up in and out of the uh, mental health system in in the state of Florida for the rest of his uh, relatively short life. Yeah. Now, I yes, that covers the the 1980s uh, into 19 into the early 90s as well. Go, actually, going in, into the 2000s, as does the narrative for for Life at Jackson Station. I, I think part of the reason is that it's important to document these stories before the people who were involved have passed on. From a very kind of a practical standpoint, you can't interview people who weren't with us. And I was very sorry to learn that that both Gerald and Steve had died. Yeah. So I could never interview them. Mm-hmm. And But there's something about going back about 30 years or so that yeah. there are still enough people around who can provide oral testimony about the events that took place and have pretty decent memories about it. Right. And so that was the case with with Marshall Ledbetter and I interviewed a number of his friends and one of his his lawyers and and who else uh, one of his professors from Florida State. Yeah. And uh, and so I was uh, I I managed to put together I think a pretty good portrait of this young man's life and I I think it speaks to a lot of issues in society, I think in some respects, marking, Making Sense of Marshall Ledbetter would be a really good book for people to read for like fresh uh, freshman college 
students to read, to be honest with you, for high school uh, seniors to read before yeah. uh, they come to, to, to college, because it really is a coming of age book and story in a way, but it's also one that kind of goes radically wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's important to think about like how it went wrong because Marshall was just an incredibly gifted student in so many ways. And yeah. he just, you know, blew the top off all sorts of standardized tests. And he had just a hugely high IQ and he was just known as re- being the kind of this just self-educated kind of genius guy. But at the same time, he couldn't transition. He couldn't make the effective transition from the college environment to the real world. And he stumbled there and right. he, he failed, you know, quite dramatically, actually. And it yeah. had very serious consequences for him. Yeah. But I think that story in many ways speaks to issues relating to people not being able to find their place in society, especially young people not being able to find their place in, yeah. in, in society. Yeah. And I think that I think the people in our generation felt that as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably in some respects easier for a 14-year-old to make the transition to 18 than the 18-year-old making the transition to say 22. Right. Because there's a whole bunch of different issues and things you need to figure out. You've got to figure out housing and, and yeah. uh, employment and income and, and also negotiating debt and student loans. And, and, it, yeah. and, it, and it can be a very you know, stressful time period increasingly today because the cost of living is, is so much higher today yeah. than right. it, it, it was before. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that, that students are more kind of frantic and stressed and anxious. I'd like to think that both stories provide a little bit of hope perhaps for the future as well. And for people who are maybe going through difficult times, maybe they can find some sort of inspiration in there or some sense of maybe a a deeper understanding that, you know, as frightening as society may seem to be, we have had different periods or earlier periods in American history where people have gone through the the same or similar things. Because I think the the early 1990s, there was a lot of anomie, or to use the Durkheimian phrase, normlessness there and not people not knowing what to do and and not knowing how to fit in. And I think with this economy and the, you know, automation of work and everything else, and people are questioning the value of of a college education when the tuition costs just keep going up and up and up. And then, so it's definitely an interesting world out there. So I know I've probably got off topic a little bit, but that's, that's a little bit of context with the Ledbetter book. And it's funny because when the attack on the Capitol happened last yes. month, yeah. I joked to a mutual friend of ours, Ed, I said, hey, they pulled the Ledbetter at the Capitol, <laughs> which, um, which is is true and false in some respects. I think there's they're very different in many ways. You had one individual take over a the sergeant of arms suite and, and issue these crazy list of demands. He was trying, Marshall was trying, ostensibly, he was trying to draw attention to cuts in public education mm. and to the plight of the homeless and to Native American issues and, and so on and so forth. The right. protesters didn't have any any coherent demands at the Capitol. Right. And also they were not ironic in, right. in any way. <laughs> and it very, wasn't, and to your point, it wasn't just one one disaffected yeah, uh, you know, college student. It was a mob, but it was striking to me. Also, thinking about the the occupation of state capitals that we saw last year, as mm-hmm. well that that this happened thirty years ago, and yeah. and many of us had no recollection. So that is, it it is just thematically. I'm always struck by aspects of history that could be forgotten that have 
connections and perhaps meaningful connections to what we're doing today. And that kind of brings me to the, the third thing that we wanted to talk about. Actually, the other element just before we leave the Ledbetter story is like the way he was captured is fascinating. Can you describe that real quick? It really was this elaborate system that, that the police set up to lure Marshall. Ledbetter broke into Wayne Todd's office, and he was the sergeant of arms at, at the Florida State Capitol. And when he got inside, he found a, a pretty remarkable stash of, of liquor, and he also found some cigars. And so he made himself right at home and started drinking the bourbon and smoking the cigars. And then he said that he wouldn't come out unless his demands were read live on CNN. And I've already shared with you the demands. It's crazy list of demands, 666 jelly donuts and the pizza and, and the cigarettes and the interviews and so on and so forth. And so what they actually did, and if you're going to read the book, you probably want to turn off the, the oh, yeah. skip it, but they actually faked this a CNN broadcast. And, and they and had it piped in through the closed circuit uh, TV system in the Florida Capitol. Yeah. And they said, okay, Marshall, yeah, we're going to be doing this. We're going to put it live on CNN. And in reality, they just had uh, Mike Vasilinda, who was the Capitol reporter, he, from the rotunda, he, he led the demands verbatim. Mm. And, then, and then they piped it into the Sergeant of Arms office and they said, okay, Marshall, you're on channel three or whatever. Right. And Marshall uh, tunes in. And, and they got him, you know, they actually fooled him. Oh which, my uh, perhaps he was a little naive there, but, right. uh, and then he gave himself up. So that, that was, that was definitely pretty interesting. Yeah. And that also the fact that this has not been made into a screenplay by now, again, I'll do so do a little more research just to between the, your podcast opportunities and your screenplay opportunities, Dan, I, I think you're doing quite well as a sociologist, but that was the other thing that we did want to discuss a little bit is the yeah. the future of the social sciences and the future sure. of, of sociology and then getting your perspective as someone who's been a professional academic for many years written books you're teaching in a lot of different interesting ways can you share a little bit about what it's like today and then we can start to get some of your perspective on uh, where things may be headed in the future Sure. Just to be very, from a very local perspective right now at, at my university, we're back in, in the classroom this, this semester. I'm teaching to reduce capacity, but we have masks on. And so I'm at least as far as teaching goes, I'm teaching in kind of the, the traditional sort of style. And the students seem to welcome that, to be honest with you. Maybe on, a, on another show, maybe we can talk about what I see as the pros and cons of online education. Yes. But as far as the discipline as a whole goes, I, and really this kind of just ties into, I, I think what some people are describing as a crisis in, in higher education overall, which has to do with the value of a college degree today. Higher education, the costs are, are just absolutely staggering. And so people are really questioning the value. And along the way, you're seeing that these traditional majors like sociology, political science, philosophy, English, they're not getting as much attention anymore. And you have a lot more of these niche majors and you have these you know, boutique majors. And like at our school, for example, they're doing like an esports major, I believe, in yeah. this department. Mm -hmm. And maybe a podcasting major will be next. And fingers, so, fingers crossed, Dan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed for that. I, I think it, it puts the traditional liberal arts education model in a bit of a bind there. And despite the fact that I am thoroughly believe that a liberal arts education is essential for just any educated person in society, a lot of people really don't think that anymore, especially the students, given just how 
expensive it is becoming. Yeah. And so I think you're seeing a lot more competition over majors mm. and, and the media studies, people will be fighting for the sociology students and the, the criminology and the psychology the faculty will be fighting over the students and so on and so forth. And then you just have so many options today compared to when we were in school. And then yeah. at, a, at, at a larger level, I think you're talking, you need to ask you know, the, the question about whether or not a student has to take 40 classes, 120 hours or whatever, to yeah. be considered to be employable in society. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of talk about certificates replacing diplomas. And so maybe in the world of the future, you wouldn't necessarily need a bachelor's degree, but if you would have a number of different certificates in the fields that, that you're going to be uh, working in, maybe that will become more of of the norm. Right. But on the other hand, I think institutions still matter and where you get your degree from, I think still matters. And I think there's a lot to be said for the community of alumni from, from key institutions of, of higher learning. We could talk about the bond that we have at New College, for example, sure. and at University of Florida, they talk about Gator Nation. And I think, I think really good schools have that, have that bond with in the alumni. And I don't think you can replicate that with just going to a world where people don't go to college anymore and, and just have the, the, the certificates. And then there's the rite of passage element to it as well, right. which I think is, is very important. But, but all that is probably sounds very kind of naive and, and idealistic to a college student who can't afford the tuition and has to work maybe one or two jobs in order to, to survive and they're piecing together a degree somehow by taking a lot of online classes and, and so on and so forth yeah. compared to when we were in school, which I don't remember many of us really working that much right. while we were actually in school. Mm-hmm. I think today, probably the, the majority of students work, right. some of them have to do it and some of them just do it for pocket money and, and so on and so forth. And so I think there's a lot more pressure on students as I alluded to before. And then because of that, the education becomes viewed as being more of an instrumental sort of a thing as opposed to being valuable in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's problematic because when we're talking about truly creative projects and education being one of them, I don't think you can just have kind of that instrumental mindset. Right. Yeah. And, and then the other thing I've seen lately is a, a renewed focus in, on the employment side on skills and skills that'll be relevant for the future. Your point about the broadening of the learner's horizons and perspective and rite of passage, all those things aside, there are still quite a few skills that you develop while pursuing a degree in the social sciences or in a traditional liberal arts uh, education In some ways, you're a case study in that where I think a lot of your ability to write and tell stories and have a a more holistic perspective and a structured way to go about your research, those are skills that are are hugely relevant outside of academia. Do you have any perspective on that where what kind of skills are developed while pursuing things that may be slightly less instrumental but still ultimately benefit people? Oh, yeah, totally. I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. And actually, when I was doing my interviews for the Jackson Station Project, I spoke to the local sheriff at the time. His, his name is, is Tony Davis. He's mentioned in the book. Mm. And anyway, before we left, his words of advice to me were, make sure that your students know how to write. Mm. At, at that time, we had a sociology with a criminal justice emphasis. And a lot of our CJ students would look for jobs at the city police or the county level, and so on and so forth. 
And what he was finding, and this wasn't just specific to my institution, is that even officers who had completed a four-year degree really were not writing at a level which was suitable to, to the task at hand. If your listeners know anything about law enforcement and police work, that it takes a lot of paperwork. And yeah. when you have to write up arrest reports and incident reports and so on and so forth, they need to be coherent. You need to have proper grammar and, and, and uh, you know, syntax and all of that kind of stuff. And, and he was finding that that wasn't always the case. And you can imagine the real world impacts of that going into a courtroom and uh, presenting an incident report to a judge or something. And, right. and it, it, a, a poorly written incident report or arrest report could have a, a serious bearing <laughs> the outcome of the case. So I think that's one example for sure. As far as sociology and, and the social sciences go, I try to get my students thinking outside the box a little bit. For example, there's a media internship with our local public radio station. And, and I'm trying to get more of my students interested in radio and and, and in production and and hopefully even things like podcasting too, because I think it is such an important medium. And I think as observers of of society and as students of society and as people who listen to other people tell their stories, I think it's natural that sociology students as well as psychology students and history students would go into these fields and hopefully start their own projects and create new stories and unearth histories which haven't been told before. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where, like I said, your example is certainly an interesting one. And it's a great uh, example of playing with your head up where I think these, what you would call academic titles have broader appeal. And that's that's another theme that I've been tracking on this show is that there is a real hunger for the historical nonfiction, the narrative powered storytelling that I think you've, you've captured in both of your books. And, and yeah, and there's plenty to talk about on that front. As we're getting closer to concluding, Dan, uh, I did want to make sure we had a little bit of time to uh, listen to you muse about what's on the horizon. So I know you uh, recently wrote an article, a journal article about the sociology in the end times. And I think that may have been hopefully uh, a bit of a provocation, not, not entirely here, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I'd love to get a little perspective on where we are today and any thoughts you might have about trends that are emerging or things that you're noticing that you think our listeners might be uh, keen to. Yeah, I think, as you say, that title was a little bit of hyperbole sociology at the end times, but I initially started working on it in late 2016, actually, and, and early 2017, when obviously there was just a sea change in the institutional culture in this country at the very highest level. And I think people in all sciences, I felt that, that I was part of a group that was under attack by a number of different institutional and non-institutional actors in society. And just there was this kind of cult of, of know-nothingism, I, I think, emerged. And, it, and it's still obviously very prevalent in our society today. People who you know violently question the value of a liberal arts degree, for example, and to think that college professors are the enemy of the people along with the journalists and, yeah. and, and, and so on and so forth. And I like to think that perhaps we have, we've become a little bit more reasonable in the last uh, month or so. And as far as education goes, I think over the next four years, at least, you are going to have a fairly supportive group of actors supporting students in a variety of ways, in a a variety of areas in society and throughout society. 
the bigger picture about student tuition and college and maybe student loan indebtedness. It sounds like there may be some movement on that front, which I think would be very welcomed. There was the bait and switch with the whole public uh, service uh, forgiveness plan from a few years ago. I'm not sure if your listeners know about that, but hardly anyone was eligible for forgiveness through that program. And I think that as a society, we have to come to terms with that and we have to come to terms with how are we going to provide the skills that citizens need to compete for the good paying family wage jobs, not just the crappy kind of precarious McDonaldized jobs. And how will we do it for everybody? So the people who are feel disenfranchised, Arlie Hochschild wrote a book called Strangers in Their Own Land about people who feel very disaffected by current trends in, in society. Obviously, we need to reach out to them too and to try to unite people. And I think that's why Jackson Station was such a compelling place for me, at least, because there's a model for that, or at least there was, at, at that particular blues bar where people would look beyond their own kind of narrow parochial interests and really believed in, in something a little bit bigger than themselves. Yeah, that was yeah. good. I, I like that because it made me ponder whether uh, a model for for higher education might be uh, a blues bar in Hodges, South Carolina, <laughs> which I hadn't actually gone that far. But but you got my <laughs> wheels wheels turning, and I'm not sure I'm not sure if, if the world's ready for that kind of uh, honky tonk vibe. But and I think the part of it too, perhaps, is that is that we, we've missed out on on kind of this this sense of maybe a sense of humor to a certain extent. I think that's what's neat about the Ledbetter thing is that the Ledbetter book is that he was such a prankster. And I think through humor and laughter and joy and music and art, perhaps we can, as I say, you know, transcend some of these differences. But as far as the institution of of, of higher education goes, people are talking about the demographic cliff and the fact that there's just not going to be as many college-aged kids coming through the pipeline. And this is all very real. And you're already seeing private schools go under. Right. And I and I think that before too long, you're, you're going to see some consolidation maybe at the public school level. And, and then the, there's real questions, as we talked about before, about whether or not you need to spend four years in a particular school right. to be considered employable and so on. Yeah. So lots going on, but hopefully folks got a taste of what Dan's cooking and really interesting books coming out. Are there other places where people will uh, be able to find what you're talking about? I do have a, a website that people can access. Yeah. It's dharrison.lander.edu. Okay, dharrison.lander.edu. You can keep an eye on what Dan's got going on. Definitely check out his books live at Jackson Station and at the Marshall Ledbetter Uh Really interesting conversation. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been my pleasure. Appreciate it. Yeah. And for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, subscribe, share us. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.